I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's almost a year since my foster daughter and I caught the train to Canberra to join 50,000 other Australians at the March for Justice rally outside Parliament House. We were calling for something to bloody well be done about the sexual assault culture in this country. Enough was enough after a deluge of hideous accusations had emerged from within Parliament House, including those made by a staffer, Brittany Higgins. Now, you might remember that while we were outside calling on our leaders to pay attention and to take action, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison was inside Parliament House and made a speech suggesting that we were all lucky we weren't being shot. Not far from here, such marches, even now, are being met with bullets. This moment represented a huge shift for me. I've been a vocal feminist since my teens. I was the women's officer at my university, running campaigns calling for an end to rape on campus. I mean, it's all just so Groundhog Day-ish. I've also had platforms for many years in mainstream media, News Limited, as editor of Cosmopolitan, to voice up on these kinds of issues. But it was for the first time in my life, and I was in my late 40s, that I felt I had permission to really voice up. It was like I had some sort of hall pass to get serious, finally, without having to apologise or water things down or manage everyone's emotions around me. Things had got that OTT. That particular event was also a tipping point for my guest today. Sarah Wilson brings you wild ideas for a fired-up life. Amy Ramikas is the political reporter for The Guardian based in Canberra at Parliament House. She's a regular panellist on the ABC's Insider program on Sunday mornings and The Project, and has just written a book called On Reckoning, On All of This. For International Women's Day, and as Australia heads to an election in coming months, I've asked Amy to join us here on WILD to cover off some wild issues that go to the heart of a nation's identity. These are universal themes that I think are cutting across all aspects of society. But I will flag, and this may come as a surprise to many of you, that Australia has an incredibly appalling record on female equality issues. In the latest Global Gender Gap Index by the World Economic Forum, and it came out at the end of last year, Australia slipped from 15th position in 2006 to number 50 today. 
we rank 99th in the world for health and survival and 54th for political empowerment for women. We sit well behind South Africa and Mexico. And in a recent gender pay gap study, Australia ranked equal last. We'll cover off all of this and more with Amy Ramikas. First of all, congratulations on your book. I understand it has sold out and it's been reprinted, which is absolutely awesome. And I also just want to thank you for being at the front line of what really is, and I can say this because this is my podcast, a clusterfuck of who knows what going on in Parliament House and beyond when it comes to gender issues in 2022. So thank you for your services. And I know it hasn't been an easy path for you because it's also been very, very personal. Um, You opened the book talking about rage, your rage, the rage that you saw among women around you. And it was triggered very much so by Brittany Higgins' story. Can you just give a quick overview of the Brittany Higgins scenario? So just over a year ago, Brittany Higgins, who uh, used to be a staffer for one of the ministers in the Morrison government, came forward to say that she had been raped at Parliament House by a colleague. Uh, Now, that, of course, is just an allegation. Nothing has been proven. Uh, That goes to court. But... I mean, first of all, no one likes to think about their workplace being unsafe, but you particularly don't think that things like that would happen in what is one of the most protected buildings in the country. You don't expect to hear about sexual violence within the walls of Parliament House. But Brittany Higgins bravely came forward and alleged that she had been raped in a minister's office and that she had tried to raise the issue with her boss and with the minister, that she didn't particularly get a great response at the time because there was an election coming up. It was 2019. And she sort of let it drop for a while because she just uh, she just couldn't handle it. It was all too much. She was coming up against those systemic power structures and just kind of felt like if she kept speaking up, her job was going to be at risk. And she'd said multiple times it was the best job she'd ever had. So she didn't want to lose it. She was only, I think, 24 at the time as well. And then she heard Grace Tame, who's the former Australian of the Year, give a speech when she won Australian of the Year last year about standing up and making some noise. And she inspired Brittany Higgins to come forward. And so that set off just a huge chain reaction, not just in the parliament, but I think Australia at large, because both Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins refused to be silent. And they really let their their emotions, but also just their empathy and their desire to see change lead this conversation. And they basically got a huge groundswell of people behind them because the way that the government reacted to Brittany Higgins' allegations, which was to try and treat it like it was just another political issue that they could just kind of wipe off the 24-hour news cycle and move on, 
really galvanized people, I think, who have been told to kind of be quiet and wait their turn uh, for when it's right to talk about issues like sexual violence. And I just noticed this huge groundswell of rage, just righteous anger sweeping through huge chunks of the community. And it wasn't a political issue. It was a human issue. This wasn't about whether you supported the government or not. This was just about people going, what the hell is going on here? How have we got to this point in time when we still don't know how to talk about sexual violence? And it wasn't just a female issue either. No. I think it was a tipping point for a lot of men as well. And I know for my father, my 72-year-old father, it really saw a penny drop for him. And it led to the March for Justice rally just a month later, uh, which I'll get to in a moment. But I want to flag that you also point out that the real tipping point for you in particular, and in your book on reckoning, you do talk about the fact that you are a survivor of sexual assault and so it it really did um, hit a nerve personally for you. And so the Brittany Grace moment gave you a certain amount of permission and licence to finally come out. The, the rage really erupted. But for you, it wasn't so much the revelation of what had been happening, but it was more the Prime Minister's response the following day. And he made a speech in response to Brittany Higgins' um, announcement and, and allegations Jenny and I spoke last night and she said to me, you have to think about this as a father first. What would you want to happen if it were our girls? Jenny has a way of clarifying things, always has. So what specifically do you think saw your rage, our collective rage, spill over from the PM's comments the following day? I mean, I can still feel bubbles of anger, even just hearing his words more than a year later. For the first, you know, couple of days or so, we saw the government being like, oh, we can't talk about that. It's before the courts. It's, you know, it's, it's, we don't know what's going on. It's not something we can speak about. Then they had to speak about it. And Scott Morrison described it as being able to understand what had happened because he was thinking of his daughters. His wife had told him to think of his daughters and therefore he understood what to do. And that just really broke something inside of me because, first of all, we always seem to have to wear somebody else's face in order to have empathy for our own situations. Uh, And for me, uh, when I um, escaped an an attempted sexual assault, I was saved by this couple who had seen me struggling with this man on the side of the road. And they'd originally driven past, but they turned around and came back uh, and rescued me. And as they were driving me to the police station, they said that they came back because originally they thought it was a domestic and then one of them had turned to the other and said, what if it was our daughter? So I was saved from potentially being raped for a second time in my life because somebody thought of their daughter, not because I was standing on the side of the road fighting for what I thought was my life. And so it it obviously struck a real personal chord with me because I've never forgotten those words. But I also think like I'm, I'm a white woman, so I look like a lot of the daughters of our politicians. But if I 
or Brittany Higgins or anyone else who looks like me has to have that politician think of their own flesh and blood before they'll act, then what are they doing for the people who don't look like us? You know, what it just, it's just such a gap in empathy, understanding. It's just such a selected empathy that I just kind of broke at that because trauma shouldn't have a gender, but so often our responses to it do. And if we aren't the right kind of look, if we're not the right kind of person, it seems like we can withhold empathy and understanding and compassion in an issue that should be universally understood. I think it's a really wonderfully nuanced point that you flesh out in quite detail in the book, because really what it does is says that people aren't able to connect with humanity. And that is just so dispiriting. Um, And I think that cuts across so many aspects of our social life today, where we see moments where humanity isn't being respected. And we've got to have some kind of strange logic to access moral fibre. The other point, of course, is that he's our leader. His job is to respond to things like that, especially when they're in his backyard, i.e. in Parliament, and the, you know, the accused is a staffer um, in his party. And so it's not good enough to say that he had to think about it as a father. He should be thinking about it as a leader. There's a sense out there that this is just a train wreck that just keeps rolling on and on and on. So, I mean, it just seems to not stop. Could you give us a little bit of a a, a highlights, a a highlights reel of some of the instances um, that have both built built the rage up to the point where the Brittany Higgins thing really, really ignited and then what's happened since? What are some real pivotal things that have just kind of kept this rage burning among women and men around Australia? Well, I think you summed it up in your introduction when you called it a clusterfuck because that's just what we've seen, just a rolling clusterfuck since Brittany Higgins came forward. Then we had an attempt at actually responding, which was basically to keep referring to Brittany as her first name and we're listening, but there was no actual action that was happening. I said yesterday in the parliament that we had to listen to Brittany. I have listened to Brittany. We had the March for Justice where Scott Morrison and many of the ministers for women did not meet with any of the leaders of the March for Justice and then Scott Morrison responded by saying, isn't it great that they're in a country where they can protest without getting shot? Even now are being met with bullets. Then we had allegations raised against Christian Porter, who was the Attorney General at the time. He denied them, never happened. But I can say categorically that what has been put in various forms, in allegations, simply did not happen. The Prime Minister did not launch any kind of inquiry into it. He just sort of said, well, it's absolutely impossible to do anything here, so we're just going to continue on as we always have. So today I want to stand in my former workplace and to say again that what happened to me was not okay. We had another staffer, Rochelle Miller, come forward and say that she'd had a consensual relationship with a minister, Alan Tudge, but it had turned against her because she had effectively, she believes, lost her job when the relationship soured. I call on every woman in this building to come and stand with me if they can, but I know that many can't because they're frightened, they're scared about their jobs, their livelihoods, 
and the careers they've worked hard for. We just had this rolling, rolling list of allegations. Then we had, finally, we're going to have a inquiry into what is going on into Parliament. And then there were all these issues about whether the people coming forward would actually have confidentiality or not. Just little things that people should not have to fight for and you wouldn't see happen in other workplaces were just happening on a daily basis. After a year of being re-victimised, commodified, objectified, sensationalised, delegitimised, misquoted, gaslit and thrown under the bus by the biased mainstream media, despite my inclusive messaging, I would just like to take this <laughs> opportunity to have a glass of water. <laughs> and thank you for reminding me that I really have nothing to lose. And then, of course, it culminated with Grace Tame's final day as Australian of the Year, where she didn't smile when she was uh, standing next to the Prime Minister. And that became a national issue. Not the fact that she spent the last year advocating for people to take back their voices. And she's been quite critical of the Morrison government response. That's not what we were talking about. We were talking about whether a woman should have smiled uh, when she was in an uncomfortable situation. So I think it just goes to show that the more things change, the more they actually stay the same. And of course, that um, morning tea um, with the PM on the eve of Australia Day was also coming off the back of, you know, allegations that uh, Grace has since made that she had been threatened by somebody, a government body, um, to not jeopardise the Prime Minister's position um, because an election's coming up. Oh, it sounds all just a little bit familiar, doesn't it? I received a threatening phone call from a senior member of a government-funded organisation asking for my word that I wouldn't say anything damning about the Prime Minister on the evening of the next Australian of the Year Awards. And, of course, it goes to the heart of what Grace has been advocating for, which is for women not to just sit there and smile when things are uncomfortable and things are wrong and when they're having to challenge um, a system to be able to get justice. And it was that very, very thing um, that that everybody picked up on, was that she didn't smile. And in fact, if she was to be true to exactly what her job was for the past year, it was to not smile in such scenarios. It, and that's my opinion. And I think that's how a lot of people did feel once they absorbed exactly what was going on. Look, um, I think we are all bamboozled by the clusterfuck. I mean, it's just really hard to believe. And this is something that I find people also tend to grapple with that, you know, you might be thinking, oh, well, this is, must be what it's like around the rest of the world, when in fact it's actually worse here in Australia. And we find that really hard to accept, I think, because we like to think we're a country of a fair go and, you know, there's equality and all of this kind of thing. But Australia ranks, you know, something like number 50, according to the World Economic Forum's latest um, global gender gender ranking index or gender gap index. Um, we've dropped from, I think, a position of around about 16 since 2016, I think it was. That's pretty crook. It is bad, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's not great. And I think a lot of people do feel that. We do like to think, as you say, that we are the country of the fair go, but we're not the fair go for everyone. And I think that's an important distinction to be made there. 
And while we think, oh, you know, like I'm, I'm doing the same job as Jack over there and we're both paid equally, chances are you're not being paid equally to Jack uh, and you're not going to advance as quickly as Jack does. And you're also just, you're going to probably face more issues. So taking Parliament as just an example here, Kate Jenkins, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, when she was allowed to do a report into harassment, abuse and bullying within staffers of Parliament House, found that over half of the staff have experienced some sort of negative work environment, be that harassment or abuse or bullying. That's quite shocking when you think about it, that there are so many people going to work in unsafe situations. By and large, the people who were suffering the most were women. And the big issue for Parliament, of course, was that if a staffer complained, they were at real risk of losing their job because you could be sacked on a dime in Parliament. You still can be. It's called loss of confidence. Whereas less in the rest of Australia, we are at least a little protected from that. Yeah. Um, and that's something a lot of people don't realise. In Parliament House, there isn't that protection. No, there's no HR. Uh, the minister could wake up one day and decide they don't like the cut of your jib and you can be out. There is so much to go into there and hopefully on International Women's Day, these issues will get fleshed out somewhat. But it is really worth just... Um, highlighting that we in Australia, and this was a report that came out at the end of last year, as I say, the Global Gender Gap Index by the uh, World Economic Forum. Australia has slipped from 15th position in the world in 2006 to number 50. And I think it's also broken up into different categories. We rank 99th for health and survival and 54th for political empowerment. I mean, they're shocking statistics. And as you say, it's systemic and you can see that that is playing out in those statistics. But I'd like to go back to rage and some of the subtleties that you explore in your book. And you point out that rage is something that simmers and it's a it's a sort of a thousands of cuts and screams that get silenced over a long period of time. And then, of course, it erupts. And for women and minorities, that is how we experience anger. It builds, builds, builds. It becomes a rage. It erupts whereas anger seems something a lot more legitimate and allowed and in the moment and sort of uh, rational because it's very direct. And that's how men tend to express um, their frustrations or, or whatever it might be. Do you feel that this is why the rage that women have responded with in the last 12 months or so has really flummoxed the Morrison government? They seem almost bewildered, like lost, blindsided by our reaction. Yeah, I think I think definitely the Morrison government was completely taken aback by just the level of anger and the fact that it wasn't going away. And yet when the men in our life are angry, we are taught that we have to listen, that we have to sit there and take it because that anger is just and that anger has been earned and our job is to try and appease that anger. Whereas when women get angry, it's, oh, calm down. You're being irrational. We, you know, you're being hysterical. And I think that's deliberate because it immediately undermines a woman's emotions. 
And if you're undermining her emotion, then you're undermining her argument and then you're undermining her and you don't have to listen. And we often use the politics of civility to dictate who gets space in these conversations and who gets a seat at the table. And if you're not the right kind of angry, uh, if you're not the right kind of emotional or you're not able to articulate your arguments in the right way, then you don't deserve that space. So the fact that women and minorities and vulnerable people were angry and were not sitting down and being quiet and were refusing to go away, really, really, really perplexed the Morrison government, I think. It was almost like the old tactics of deflecting and blaming and then shooting the messenger, which is often a journalist such as yourself who tries to ask these ministers really reasonable questions because that's your job. But there was one response, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, that saw rage bubble over again. And I'll read it out to you now. So blokes don't get it right all the time. We all know that. But what matters is that we're desperately trying to. And that's what I'm trying to do. And we will get this right. We need to focus on that. What's going on with yeah. What do you feel is going on with a response like that? <laughs> I mean, I still don't know what is going on with that. I think uh, I think Scott Morrison, as a as a politician, always just speaks to a particular group of people, and I'm not necessarily part of that group. And when I say I, I mean like you know, um, like a, a younger woman who uh, doesn't necessarily always vote conservative or vote conservative at all. I think I'm quite outspoken and Scott Morrison isn't talking to me when he says these things. He's talking to what he likes to call quiet Australia. The entire time the government was dealing with this, it was just attempting to deflect any sort of responsibility it may have needed to have accepted to address the issue. It was just, we didn't know what was happening. Nobody can say who knew what was happening. Nobody can say who knows how to react to this. So we're all just going to ignore it. And Scott Morrison attempted so many resets during that time that it kind of, you kind of just lost track of where he stood on the issue and who he was talking to. It's, it's quite, yeah, I don't think I've seen anything like it and I'm not sure I will see anything like it again. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm wanting to flesh all of this out with you because I think that 
These kinds of responses are not isolated, of course, to Parliament House and and the Scott Morrison's um, LNP party, but it's a habit. It's a habit that is reflective of the way that we are dealing with difficult and uncomfortable issues in culture today. And there is nothing more difficult and and uncomfortable than gender issues quite often. You know, it's the nexus where so much just comes to a pointy head, you know. And it is really worth talking out these kinds of responses and why they're not appropriate and why they're not good enough in 2022. Because I think we all need to listen. We all can fall into these patterns of gaslighting, shooting the messenger when we're uncomfortable. And I think what I took from that, you know, blokes don't get it all right all the time, but you know, the important thing is that we're trying. It's in that little key bit, isn't it? It's like turning the attention to the little bit that we're trying to get right, that we're getting right. That is, we're trying. But it so easily switches the attention from what the bigger issue is, you know, and it's a form of gaslighting, of course. I I guess I want to ask, as a journalist, you know, your job is to ask questions on behalf of the rest of us, and particularly a journalist up at Parliament House. Is this kind of just driving journalists like yourself mad, this culture of constant deflecting, this constant blaming the journalist, the messenger, the person there doing their job and, you know, operating as the fourth wall. You know, is this something that journalists in general are actually fed up with? And is there any discussion as to why it's happening and has it got worse? Are we imagining it out here in, in, the, in, the, in the public land or is it, is it actually a thing? No, it, it absolutely is, is, is a thing and it, it does drive me batshit insane. To, to watch it happen. And it's gotten particularly worse in the last couple of years. So if politicians don't want to answer a question from you, they just reject the premise of your question, even when it's a fact. You can't reject it because it's a fact. It happened. But no, they just reject the premise of, of your question. Or they say, well, you might, you might say that, but, but I wouldn't. I don't, I don't agree with that. It's not for a politician to agree with your question or not. It's for a politician to answer it. But they do deflect or they outlie, outright mislead deliberately, or they just, what about something. So they use a lot of what about isms where they will start by going, well, hang on, but what about what the other side did? And you think, well, the other side haven't been in power in this country for 10 years. Does it, does it matter right now? Cause we're talking about what you're doing, but they do it because they know that people are time poor. They know that people aren't necessarily paying attention because their own lives are, you know, pretty overwhelming at the moment. So politicians took advantage of the fact that we were all sidetracked and not paying attention to what they were doing. They know all of this and they rely on it uh, because if you aren't paying attention, then you're not paying attention to what they're doing, which makes it a lot easier for them to keep doing whatever it is they want and get away with it. I'll go back to just the sexual assault issue once again because I think it is a, it's hopefully going to be a very hot issue on the agenda as we go into the election. I really do hope it doesn't die off because it so often does. You know, I've witnessed it um, for decades now. It has this little flurry of excitement and then it very much drops away and it's all about jobs and growth, you know, when we come to an election. But could you just give us all a little bit of an update just really quickly on some of the top line statistics on where sexual assault statistics are in fact at and, and just how prevalent it is in the younger generation? It's quite overwhelming when you look at it as just as just the numbers. 
it's something that I think people kind of find quite uncomfortable. So they sort of just treat it as numbers. So one in three women will be a victim of sexual assault or harassment in their life. Uh, It gets even more serious when you talk about teenagers. So I think it's about one in two uh, before the age of 15 will experience uh, harassment or abuse. We're seeing new statistics uh, where 97% of perpetrators are men when it comes to sexual assault and harassment, it's kind of overwhelming because that's a lot of people that we know. It's a lot of kids it that is. we're passing on the street. And uh, we always talk about this and the numbers in terms of it being a women's issue. And we talk about it, you know, relating to women in particular. I mean, even this conversation, you know, we're talking about it in terms of it being an, an, a women's issue. But when you look at those statistics, uh, by and large, the perpetrators are men. And where are, where are the men in this conversation? So I'm not saying that we need the men to step up and tell us what to do or to come up with the solutions, but we do need to start thinking about this as being a men's issue. So often people do not come forward because they are worried about what people are going to say about them. And we know from the statistics how few cases actually end up going to court. So sexual violence is being more reported because of what's been happening in the last year, but it's still underreported. There's still a lot of people who worry about the he said, she said situation, which is, you know, terminology that we don't use for any other crime. Like if your house gets broken into, we don't say this is a he said, he said, you know, situation. We just... It's a they said, they said. Yeah. We just investigate it and then we just work out whether or not the house got broken into and lay charges if indeed there is enough evidence that the house was broken into. That doesn't happen with gendered violence. Uh, it, yeah, it's a good just, point. It does turn to be a, a she said, he said, and oh, well, we're never going to be able to work it out uh, because, you know, he's a good bloke and we're not sure what happened here. You know, are you sure you didn't consent? It's, it's that sort of thing. Until we stop being so defensive about the perpetrators and all of those good men who just had an out-of-character moment uh, and until we stop being so defensive about looking to blame survivors of sexual violence, we're never actually going to progress in this conversation. And it, it's time we start having that conversation, I think. The silver lining to all of this is that, you know, women like Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins and yourself, you are taking control of the conversation. And so this whole notion of not smiling for the cameras, just because that's what you're meant to do to be polite when really it's an uncomfortable situation that needs to be highlighted, therefore it's inappropriate to smile. And in your case, there was a moment on the project shortly after the smile incident and you were being interviewed about this book on on Reckoning, and um, and Peter Van Olsen, who's a well-known journalist and he's a panellist on the project, he had actually written, I think, either the day before or that day, a op-ed in The Australian referring to Grace Tame's lack of smile and saying it was rude, um, juvenile, and so on. You didn't hold back, and... It was a glorious moment, and not just because I wanted to get the journalist who said the wrong thing. That's not what it was about for me. It was about the fact that 
you felt you had permission to be able to do something that women have not been allowed to do even as recently as a year ago. And that is to speak out and confront somebody who says something inappropriate about a very uncomfortable topic. And I want to ask, is that something that you is new for you? Is it something that caught you by surprise personally in that moment? Were you just channeling some kind of beautiful, ragey flow? Or do you think that something has really shifted for a lot of women? It's really interesting that you use the phrase, felt like I had permission, because I think that probably encapsulates a lot of it in that women for a long time have felt like they needed permission to be publicly angry and to express that anger. And it, it, what happened on, on the project certainly wasn't planned at all. You know, I, I'm never going to be able to watch back that footage and journalists should never become the story either. So I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable with it. But I remember sitting there and I had only only found out a couple of moments before I went on to speak about these issues that uh, he was going to be on the panel. And I just thought about some of the pieces he had written over the last year. And that day he had written a piece calling, as you say, Grace Tame juvenile and, you know, disrespectful because she didn't smile. And I just thought, if I don't actually say something now, then I am just the world's biggest hypocrite because how can I be sitting here advocating for people to actually feel anger and to express that anger if I don't express mine over over that piece and that and and those actions over the last year. And so it wasn't so much as I felt I had permission as I just became overcome with anger again, I just got mad. I got really, really mad. And I got mad at a moment where I was on live television and I couldn't stop myself from expressing that anger and then explaining why I was angry. And I was really, really helped by uh, Carrie Bickmore, who's a host of, of the project, who immediately started asking Mr. Van Onselen her own questions about why he had written that piece and why he had felt the need. And I think that that was the turning point. It wasn't just me sitting there feeling like I was ranting. It was being supported by another quite impactful woman in the industry saying, actually, yes, I have some questions about this as well. And I think that's where the power lies. It's in the collective. And that's what we've seen over the last year. We have seen, you know, women come up and stand together and say, we want to be taken seriously and you will listen to us for this. We are no longer going to be told to be quiet. We're not going to be polite because this isn't a polite issue. It's why should we sit here and and not be angry over rape and sexual violence? Why shouldn't we be angry at disrespect? And it's it's not new. These aren't new issues. They're not happening in a vacuum. This is happening everywhere, in classrooms, in workplaces, in friendship circles, in homes. It's been happening for decades. We deserve to be angry about this. When I've been talking about this over the last year or so, I have had women from every generation, from a 92-year-old to an 11-year-old, come up and tell me about their experiences with sexual violence. And they have been from every spectrum of the community, every single, everyone you could imagine 
has some sort of touchstone to this. We should be angry and we shouldn't have to be polite when we're talking about it because it's not a polite subject. And telling someone to smile is just another way of telling someone to be quiet, to to sit and to wait their turn. And I think we've waited well enough on this on this subject. Now it's time for action. Specifically about, uh, I guess, gendered violence and um, inequities, are there particular policies that we should be asking our MPs about? Are they going to support XYZ? Are they going to implement ABC? Is there anything that we can actually really pin them down to if this conversation has triggered some, some rage, some appropriate rage? I think that uh, it's following through with the promises that have been made. So whether all of the recommendations from the Sex Discrimination Commissioner are actually going to be implemented across Australia, that includes in your workplaces as well. They might tell you that they've been noted, but noted doesn't actually mean that the government is going to make them law. So that's that's the key difference there. I think also what they're planning on doing in addressing the gender pay gap which is still a very real issue in Australia. And don't be put off if they say, you know, it's a coalition candidate says, oh, we've done more for women than any other government in Australia. I mean, just think about whether that rings true to you or not. And when it comes to funding, when is that funding going to start flowing? When are the legal centres going to start getting the money that they've been promised? Will it be ongoing or is this just a flash in a pan for the next couple of years? Because there are a lot of vulnerable women out there who need help and they shouldn't be financially penalised for being in a violent relationship. No one goes into a relationship thinking it's going to end violently. That happens to a lot of women and it's probably happening to women that you know. So they shouldn't have to suffer massive financial penalties or feel that they need to stay in the relationship because they have no way out. So domestic violence leave is another issue that would help there that the government is looking at but isn't necessarily uh, legislative for every company across Australia. So that's something that needs to happen. And accessing your super is not necessarily the answer that the government thinks that it is, because that means you're going to be financially penalised in the back end of your life. And women always have less super than men anyway, because women take time out of the workforce to have children and look after children. So whole heap of issues, think about what's important to you, and then ask your candidates to answer those questions for you. That's that's awesome advice. I really appreciate it. Um, all right. So one last question. It's International Women's Day on Friday. And I've sort of thought back to previous International Women's Day. I mean, last year, my member, my local member, um, Dave Sharma, I think, wandered the shopping malls of the eastern suburbs of Sydney, handing out roses in plastic um, to women. I think he got a little confused with Valentine's Day. The year before, I think, I think Scott Morrison made a speech in Parliament, I think I have that right, where he said that, you know, it's, it's great to see women rise, but not at the expense of, of men. So look, the Liberal Party haven't had a great record with International Women's Day. What do you reckon is going to happen? Like, do you think there'll be some wonderful moment um, and an announcement? What are you hoping for, Amy? 
Uh, I, I don't even know if I can hope for anything anymore because it just gets absolutely fumbled, you know, like government members and opposition members go to these morning teas, which are usually arranged by women. Uh, all the men think that they get a cookie because they're caring about women's issues for like the one time of the year. Uh, they usually give speeches. And yes, it was at an International Women's Day event that Scott Morrison gave that speech where he basically was all like, you know, yay, women, but not at the expense of men because lo and behold we ever see women rise above men god the whole earth would come collapse i think i just hope that politicians are listening and not just to me or people like me but to the many 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 women and men who have called out for action on this issue and not just not just platitudes Right, well, we covered off quite a few calls to action in the final minutes of that chat. We've got an election coming up. It's a great opportunity to feel heard on these difficult, uncomfortable matters. You know, it's funny, over the course of this podcast, a number of really prominent themes keep emerging. And I think this International Women's Day, they're great themes to reflect on. One of them that's come up a number of times is that it's okay to rage. Anger is entirely appropriate, particularly at this juncture in history. Also, we discussed this in many episodes, the importance of getting comfortable with discomfort and to realise there are some uncomfortable truths going on and we should be feeling awkward and angry and a whole range of different emotions. It's okay. I think also this conversation and many of the conversations on this podcast has highlighted how much we need to get aware of when we might deflect or gaslight or distract ourselves or blame the mirror or the messenger in difficult conversations. I think all of us could learn from from just being aware that these things go on when we're uncomfortable. We need to identify them and we need to be able to shift each other when we, I suppose, resort to these fairly base reactions. Anyway, until next episode, please stay wild. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.